At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Good morning, Gospel Community Church. Once again, our church is being blessed this morning by a pastor from another church. If you remember, Pastor Kirk, our preaching pastor here, is on sabbatical. And so what that means is over the next couple of weeks, we will continue to be blessed by other men preparing the weeks, uh, preparing in the word, preparing to deliver God's word to you and for us to receive that blessing and take in this very word. And so this morning we have Matthew Lawson here from Greenbrier Church, a sister church of ours at Acts 29. Super excited. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us this morning. I will tell you a secret, and I hope I'm not stealing something he, he did tell me this morning that we are his church away from home. And so that's a, that's a, that's a very big compliment. We're so excited for him to be here and uh, appreciate your uh, dedication to the word and your service to us this morning. So thank you, Matthew. Thank you, David. Um, I'm very glad to be here. Uh, like I said, I did tell David, this has sort of become my home away from home. This is my third time here. Um, and so I, I was telling one of the guys out there, I'm it's one of those things that people always say, and I'm not trying to curry favor, but I'm way more blessed when I come here than probably you guys are. Um, and so I'm not really trying, I'm not trying to blow smoke, I promise. Um, so what in the world am I preaching on, right? We're in Numbers 23. <laughs> she actually came up to me and was like, are you sure this is your text this morning? Um, yeah, so we're in Numbers. It'll make sense, I promise. Um, but I actually, how we got here is interesting. So when I preach, typically, I don't do this as a vocation. I'm a lay pastor at my church, um, but I do pinch hit a, a lot for um, our pastor and, as you see, in other 89 churches in the state. And so normally when I do this, if I get a week or two out from a date that I'm going to preach, I have a text. My, my prep process always begins with a text, whether I'm in a sermon series or anything else, a one-off like this. There's always something the Lord will impress upon me, like either in my own quiet time or just somewhere along the way, I'll come across a scripture and the Lord will impress it on my heart and be like, that's it. And normally my process begins on Sunday night, the week before or Monday. I got to Tuesday and I had nothing for you people. Like, and I, it's one of those things where I myself am coming out of a season where I've been distracted um, a lot not spiritually checked out, but we all go through those seasons of life events, a move, a significant death in my family, just a lot of things going on. And I've not been as consistent in my time in the Word as I normally am, and not as a braggadocious thing or whatever, but I normally am very consistent in that. And a lot of times my sermon preparation comes out of that time. And so I'm praying on Tuesday morning, and I'm just like, Lord, I don't have anything. I need a word for these people. I need you to direct me in your Word. And I was praying in such a way that it was, all right, I've not done what I'm supposed to do. Therefore, I don't have anything to preach on this week. And it's my fault. As though the Lord blessing you and his word were contingent upon me. And I was praying and I said something. I said basically along, something along the lines of, 
and I was thinking about how inconsistent I've been and, and feeling con- convicted, but really I was wrestling with condemnation, to be honest with you. But I just said, Lord, thank you that you don't change even though I do. And my heart gripped, sort of con- <laughs> contracted at that, and thinking about the immutability of God, the fact that he does not change. The famous verse that people quote is he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? But thinking about the peace that there is in that, the joy that there is in that. And we, we talk about the gospel. We're all very well-versed in the gospel. But for me, a lot of times I struggle with thinking about the gospel as though it were a contract that God agreed to and now is bound by. And what I mean by that is like in eternity past, the Lord and the, Son, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were like, all right, well, we're going to do all these things. This is going to be the plan of redemption. And then they like agreed to it then. And then somewhere along the way, I was like entered into that contract. And then he's like, well, I've got to honor it because I said that's what I was going to do. The reality is, is that the gospel is a surety. Like we just sang that song um, and I didn't know they were going to sing it, but I'm fully known and loved by you. You won't let go no matter what I do. Well, the reason that God won't let go no matter what we do is because of who he is. And because he is immutable and because he does not change. And I was gripped with that idea for me and for all of you this week. And so I want to encourage you that. I'm going to encourage you with that reality from our text today. But thinking about the immutability of God, that led me to Numbers 23. So we're going to be preaching from Numbers 23. And I legit, it took me until Wednesday night. I didn't start my outline until Wednesday night, which is not what I do. And it took me Tuesday and Wednesday, like, Lord, really? Numbers? Like, seriously, I mean, I could do this out of Hebrews. I could do this out of James. I could do this many other places. Like, yeah, Numbers 23. So we're going to be in this really obscure story from a book that, as she said, not a lot of people read a lot, but I'm going to hopefully, if the Lord will enable me, um, I'll be able to make that make sense for you. So let me pray and ask for his help. <laughs> Father, I thank you that you don't change even though I do. I thank you that you don't let go. It doesn't matter what I do. I thank you that you are good, that you are constant, that you are faithful. I pray that you would help me, enable me to declare that from this text, from these things that you have done and the things that you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I've got a sort of one takeaway, one central idea from this text that I want you to see in this text. I want you to um, I want you to see it as we go through it. So I'm going to go ahead and give that to you, and it should be my second slide. God is faithful to the people that He calls because of His character and nothing else. God is faithful to the people that He calls because of His character and nothing else. Now, what I mean by that is we're going to see in this text He's faithful to His covenant people in the Old Testament, which is Israel, right? That means he's faithful to us as his new covenant people, the church, in Christ because of his righteousness and nothing else. So we preach the gospel and we say that, you know, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast, correct? Well, that's, again, not because that's a contract that God signed and has to adhere to. It's because he does not change. He said, I'm going to, the righteousness of Christ will be sufficient to cover their wickedness, and I will apply that to their wickedness and see that when I look at them. Because I was talking to a guy this week and he said, I have trouble thinking, believing that God really has positive emotions towards me. And I told him, I'm like, that's because you think God is like you, but he's not. He does not change. He does not waver. And so if 
I want, if you will look at this, look for this in our text, and I will explain it. But this is the idea today. God is faithful to you. If you're here and you're in Christ, he is faithful to you because of who he is and what he is, and it has absolutely nothing to do with you. That's what I want you to take away today. All right, let's get to it. So Numbers 23, 16 through 21. All right, to do this, I'm gonna have to give you some context. So bear with me, all right, before we actually get into our text. So in the Exodus, right, we're all familiar with the story. Israel is in bondage in Egypt. God sends a redeemer, Moses, in to get them out. Plagues, Passover, all that. They come out, they go through the Red Sea, God destroys the Egyptians, and then they go to Mount Sinai. They go to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up, he receives the law, and then the latter part of Exodus, the book of Exodus, is them getting instructions for the tabernacle and all that stuff. I'm not gonna go through all that, don't go to sleep. Then there's Leviticus, definitely don't go to sleep, which is all the rites and the rituals and all the things that they must do to worship God, what it means to worship God as his covenant people coming out of bondage, going to the land of promise, okay? So let's get the story. God's people that he has chosen that he has called, that he has said, he told Abraham, I'm going to be the God to your descendants. And I'm going to use your descendants to bless every family on earth, which is us, by the way, are in bondage. God's covenant people are in bondage. The people he has chosen are enslaved. He sends a redeemer to bring them out of slavery. He parts the Red Sea, passes them through the waters, destroys their enemies, death, hell, and the grave, and then moves them to Mount Sinai and says, come to my mountain. He tells Moses, bring the people to my mountain. My presence will be there and I want you to worship me. And then I'm going to be with you and go with you through this wilderness and establish you in the land of promise. I'm going to drive out the people that are there. I will be with you. My presence will be with you. You will be in peace and safety and in abundance in my presence. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's Exodus 19 right? We're very familiar with the Ten Commandments, but in Exodus 19, the chapter before that, he, that's the sort of the preface for that. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the story. Does any of that sound familiar? We are God's covenant people. We are God's chosen people. We were in bondage to sin and slave, enslaved to death. He sent Christ, the ultimate redeemer, to bring us out of that. He destroys our enemies in the resurrection, and he is moving us. He has told us, if I leave, and go to prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. He is taking us to a land of promise eternally in, his, in the eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, whether by death or his return. The entire Exodus is a type of our salvation in Christ. What God was doing back then is telling us and pointing us to what he ultimately would do cosmically in Christ our Lord. I know that's a big concept. But to understand the significance of what God says about himself in Numbers 23, I must go through that. So Numbers picks up where Exodus leaves off. They're still at Sinai. And then in the last part of Numbers 10, they leave Sinai and start going to the land of promise. We're going to the promised land. We're leaving the mountain. We've got the law. Now we know how to worship God. We're going to leave the mountain and go to the promised land. Numbers tells the story of what happens in between there. In the Hebrew Bible, it's actually called In the Wilderness, not Numbers. The actual Hebrew title for this book is In the Wilderness, which actually is more applicable, more descriptive of what it is, and frankly, more interesting. We call it Numbers because Moses takes two sentences in, in the book. So Numbers 1 through 10 is essentially Israel figuring out how to be God's covenant people on the move. 
we're going, we're organizing, God is with us, what does that look like? And the tone is pretty positive because God's telling them, here's this law, here's that, here's this ritual, here's what you do. But then Numbers 11 through 25 turns really negative really quick. So the middle section of Numbers is 11 through 25, and it is a repeated cycle of Israel rebelling against God, discounting what he has told them, not doing what he said, not believing what he said, not believing that he can do and accomplish what he told them he can do and accomplish, and God judging them for him. So I'm going to briefly give you that picture. In chapter 11, the Israelites begin to complain because they don't have enough meat. God's only magically providing manna on the ground, right? So they're like, we don't have enough meat. And they complain. God sends a bunch of quail, but then he strikes them with a plague and he judges them and a lot of them die. In chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, rebel against his leadership and they begin to question his leadership because he marries a Cushite woman. So God calls Miriam, Miriam, Moses, and Aaron before the tent of meeting. His presence comes down and he says, don't second guess my guy. And he strikes Miriam with leprosy. Aaron and Moses intercede on her behalf and he says, all right, I'll heal her, but she has to stay outside the camp for seven days. In chapter 12, in chapter 13 and 14 is sort of the zenith or the crescendo of Israel's rebellion. And it's the famous story of Moses sending the 12 spies into the land to spy out the land for 40 days, right? And we all know the story. They come back and 10 of them are like, hey, this land that God said is incredible is absolutely incredible. It's everything God said, but we can't take it. We won't have it. The people are too strong. Their cities are too fortified. There's even giants in the land. And the people of Israel believe them. And when Moses and Aaron are like, no, God has told us the same God that sent the plagues and got us out of Egypt, that part of the Red Sea, that God has told us he will take us and establish us there. We need to trust him and believe him. He said he would drive out all those people. They're like, no, they even get to the point where they're gonna stone Moses and Aaron. But then God's presence comes down on the tabernacle and they're all like, oh, we better leave them alone. And then God says, I'm gonna destroy all of Israel. And Moses and Aaron intercede on their behalf and say, no, the same people that were about to stone them to death for basically proclaiming the goodness of God to them, they turn around and they intercede on their behalf and they're like, no, please don't kill them. Fulfill your word. And God says, okay, I am God. I do what I say, which is where we're gonna be today. He says, but this generation will not enter the promised land. You're still my people. God does not declare them not his people. He says, you're still my covenant people, but this generation is dying in the wilderness. They're not entering the promised land. In chapter 16, and I'm making a point here, you've got the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and On where they question Moses and Aaron's spiritual leadership over the people. That culminates with Moses and Aaron going to these people, these guys and their families, telling everybody to get away from them, pronouncing God's curse on them, and the ground opens. God opens the ground and swallows them whole. And then it says he casts a plague on them and like 14,000 people died among the people that followed them. It's a hammer, right? Uh, in chapter 20, so the rock of Meribah, it's the second time they're at this rock. They're in the desert. They need water, right? And they're complaining about water. So in Exodus 17, God tells Moses to strike the rock and water will come out and he does it. In Numbers 20, they're back there. And God tells Moses, this time, take your staff and speak to the rock and water will come out. And he tells him to do it differently this time for a reason. I'm not gonna go into it. But Moses strikes the rock. God still provides the water for his people because he's faithful to his promise, right? But he tells Moses and Aaron, because you have not trusted what I said, you will not enter the promised land. You're gonna die before you ever get there. And then in chapter 25, 
Um, oh, no, no, no. Chapter 21, the serpents, the famous story. So the people are complaining against God and Moses, and God sends fiery serpents, and a whole thousands of them die. And then Moses, again, intercedes on behalf of his people, and God says, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and raise it up. And everybody that looks at this serpent, when they're bit, they won't die. And Jesus even quotes this in John. He says, so as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the son of man be lifted up. Side note, I just, let me stop for a second. Is your God big enough to have done that then, knowing what he would do with Jesus on the cross later? That is a picture of the crucifixion. There's a reason God did that. It's not just happenstance. Don't think about the Bible as like in the Old Testament, there's like God the Father's doing this and then Jesus is just kind of incubating, waiting for the cross and all that, like waiting to come. No, they were all there. Jesus was there telling Moses to do this, knowing what he was going to do. Like understand that. So a bunch of them died there. And then lastly, in Numbers 25, which is immediately after our, where we're at today, and this is, very, this is a very sad story, uh, Israel is camped in the land of Moab and some of the Moabites come out and they entice a portion of Israel to worship Baal, which is a false god in the land with them. And God judges them and a lot of them die. So they actually kill them. <laughs> he tells Moses to go kill them. So what's my point? Why spend all that time? 11 through 25, there are some exceptions in that section, but this whole section is nothing but Israel rebelling and God judging them. They're in a very, this period of the Exodus, this period of Israel's history is very fraught with peril. It's very fraught with sin and rebellion. And the author of Numbers structured this this way on purpose to show us. He obviously does not put everything that happened over these 40 years in this book. So you have to think about it this way. The things that he did put in there, he put in there for a reason. And he told us this portion of the story to get a picture across to us. He's telling us, all right, we know that we wound up in the promised land and we know that we wound up possessing it. And we know that we were, we were let out of slavery in Egypt. But what happened in between where all these people died and they didn't enter? Was God faithful? Did he fail his people? Because they died in the wilderness? No, in the wilderness is about God's faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. That is the entire point of the book, even though it's brutal at times. So within this section, there's the story of Balaam, right? The author of Numbers put this here. What God says, I go through all of that to give you the context for this story because what God says about himself and about his people and how he feels about them and how he relates to them and what he sees when he looks at them within the context of this period of rebellion in their history is incredible. And it is absolutely gospel Old Testament. So let's get it. Verse 16. Oh, it's already up there. Okay. So in this process, Israel is camped adjacent to a kingdom called Moab. They've already fought and defeated three kings. Aram, Arad was a Canaanite king, Sihon and Og, one of whom was a giant. So you've got this Moabite king, Balak. The, probably the correct pronunciation of his name would be like Balak, but I'm from South Georgia, so we're gonna call him Balak if that's okay with you guys. Um, I'm way not pretentious enough to go Balak for the next hour. Uh, not hour, sorry, like 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> That wasn't Freudian, I promise. Although, no, I won't do it. I won't do that to you guys. So Balak, this Moabite king, it says at the beginning of the sequence of the narrative that Balak observed Israel and all that they were doing. 
They saw their massive numbers. They saw that they had defeated these other guys and they saw them come up out of Egypt. And he's like, they're a threat to us. Like we're here. They're clearly here to kick some dust up, right? And we're here. They're probably going to, we're probably next on the list. And so he decides that he's going to send a delegation to a, a pagan prophet named Balaam who was known for being able to commune with the gods, okay? There are extra biblical reasons that we know that. Just trust me, I don't have time to go through it. But there's some people say that Balaam actually was a prophet to Yahweh because he speaks with God in this story. That is incorrect. Balaam was a diviner. He was a sorcerer, but he had a reputation for being able to commune with different gods. And so Balak decides, I'm gonna pay this guy to come and speak to their God, the God of this people, and curse them so that I can destroy them and drive them out, drive them away from what God had promised them. And so he sends a delegation to Balaam. Balaam's like, all right, well, let me go talk to these people's God. God actually speaks to Balaam and says, don't do it. And so Balaam says, no, I'm not going. So then Balak gets more money and more guys and sends them and says, look, you don't understand. We're gonna make you rich. They say, we're gonna do you great honor, which is back then talk, we're gonna break you off. We're gonna make you rich you really want to do this, come and do this. So there's this whole thing where Balaam goes back to the Lord. The Lord says, go, but he's angry with him. So he's riding his donkey and the donkey talks. That's what most people know from the story, right? The talking donkey, right? So that's significant in that an angel of the Lord appears. God opens his eyes to see an angel of the Lord on his way to meet this king. And the angel of the Lord tells Balaam, he's like, look, I could have killed you just now. The reason I didn't is because you're going to go talk to this king and you had better only say what God tells you to say. That's significant because multiple times throughout all this thing, Balaam gives Balak four oracles, four prophecies. And in every one, he's like, I can only say what God told me to say. And he even says it in our text today that the Lord put a word in his mouth and said, thus shall you speak. So that is the setting. So we're in Balaam's second oracle. He takes him to three different mountaintops trying to get him to curse God's people. And every time Balaam won't do it because he goes and God actually speaks to him and he comes back and God gives him a message for this king. I know. So here we are. We're actually to our text, right? Well, when you go and you guess and you're going to one-off preach in numbers, you got a lot of work groundwork you got to lay. I'm like, Lord, I love it, but do you really want me to do this? All right. So verse 16. And the Lord met Balaam, which just that, those five words themselves are incredible. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, return to Balak and thus shall you speak. And he came to him and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, rise Balak and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. So again, get the picture. This king has decided, and I, I don't have time to go through it. I wish I did. But there's a reason this king thought that he could get Balaam to get Israel's God to curse them. He thought it was viable. He thought that would happen. So God actually, so this enemy of God's people, again, God has called Israel, said, you're my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. I'm taking you to this land to establish you in my presence. This enemy of God's people wants to, wants Balaam to get God to curse them so that he can keep them from that. He, an enemy king, a pagan king, an enemy of God's people hires a pagan prophet to come and try to pronounce a curse on these people and God actually meets with him and says, oh no, no, go back to Balak and tell him what I said. That's basically 16 through 21 and don't say anything else. So 
Balaam comes back and Balak's, well, what did their God say? And Balaam says, he said this, and you better listen. And then verse 19. So what is the message that God has for Balak through Balaam? It's very important. I go through all that so that you understand Balaam speaking to this king in these oracles, even though he is a pagan, this is the Lord speaking. Because he said, this is what you go tell him I said. In verse 19. So what did he say, Balaam? He said this, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's message to the enemy of God's people is this, God is not man. That's God saying, I'm not like you. Everything you know, everything you've got going on down there, I am different. I am other than. I am holy, which is actually what holiness is, being other than. When God says, I'm holy, what he's saying is, I'm not like any of you. I am not man. And in ancient Near Eastern cultures, all of their, they were all polytheistic and all of their gods had human-like qualities. They were all powerful, but they all had weaknesses. They all had deficiencies. They all had sin. They all had these things. They all had negative attributes. It's very significant that God sends Balaam back to Balak to say, I am not man. And that line informs everything that he says coming. He says, I am not a man that I should lie. I don't lie. He says, I am, God is not a man that he should lie. He's saying, you guys lie. I don't. You say that you know things that you don't know. You say that you're going to do things that you can't do. You say that you're going to determine things when you control nothing, whereas I actually control everything. I am not a man that I should lie. I am not like you. I'm not like your gods that you worship down here. I'm not all these. I'm not, I'm unlike anything that you have going on down there. You need to understand that. And I don't lie. Then he says, has he said, and will he not do it? That's God saying to Balak, what I say, I will do. I don't say anything and then fail to do it. It says, has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? He's saying every word that I speak is meaningful and fulfilled. I do not speak idle words. God does not speak idle words. And he's telling this king that through this prophet. He has hired Balaam to try to get God to undo everything that God has promised to do for his people. And God's response is, I'm not like you and your gods. I don't lie. I'm not like you. I don't change my mind. He says, I'm not like a son of man that I would change my mind. The reality is, I'm fickle, right? I'm strong today and weak tomorrow. My opinion is here today and there tomorrow. My affections are there today and there tomorrow. God's saying, I'm not like that. Like, we know that, okay? We know the gospel. We know that God is, philosophically, we understand that God is not like us. But I, I know that I was struck Tuesday, and I know that I'm, I have a conviction that I don't often stop and think about the reality that God is not like me. He does not think about me like I think about me. He does not think about you like I think about you. You know what I mean? And so this statement, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind informs everything else that he says. And Balaam continues in verse 20. Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. So Balaam, Balaam's saying, look, 
I went and I spoke to their God and he told me to bless them because he has blessed them. And I can't talk him out of that. Why? Because he's not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God does not change his mind about his people. If he has called you, he has not changed his mind about that. You have no effect on that. Like I said earlier, God is faithful to the people that he calls because of his character and nothing else. So he says, I cannot curse these people. Balaam's not even saying, I don't want to. He's saying, I can't. I can't do what you want me to do because their God said, one, I'm not like your gods because all of their gods would do things like that. That's why they believed that this was possible, right? He's saying, I'm not like your gods. What you want me to do, I'm not gonna do because I don't lie. I don't change my mind. I don't change how I feel about my people based on anything other than me. So Balaam says, I received a command to bless. He is blessed. I cannot revoke it. Praise God for that. Nothing can revoke the blessing of God in your life if you're in Christ. For them, it was circumcision. It was the fact that they were descended from Abraham. The reason God did those things, that's what made them God's covenant people. The reason God did it that way is so that we would understand much later on when men like Paul and Peter are telling us it is only by the righteousness of Christ that you are God's covenant people and nothing with you. Abraham and the Israelites did absolutely nothing for this blessing that Balaam is talking about. In fact, this is set again within a context where they're doing everything to refute it. If there ever was a time when God should have said, yeah, I'm gonna curse them because they don't deserve it, it would be right here. That's why it's right here. That's why God's saying this right now to demonstrate to us that even though we are rebellious, he is faithful. So if you are in Christ, God has blessed you in Christ and nothing can revoke that. Your security and your peace in that is not in your ability to remain changeless. It is in the fact that God is changeless. Hmm. Verse 21. Here we go. This is, this is a weird statement that he says here. I'm going to have to work through it because it is incredible. Verse 21. Huh. Again, this is all part of God saying, hey, go tell this guy I said this. Verse 21. He has not, God has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. So when it says that he has not beheld misfortune in Jacob and he has not seen trouble in Israel, this is one of those translative difficult things. So the King James actually says, uh, that God has not seen iniquity among Israel. And so the Hebrew word that is translated here is difficult for us to know exactly. There's not a, a direct relationship. So when it says that he has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, that he has not seen trouble in Israel, what he's saying here in a literal sense is God is not regarded. He has not looked upon the iniquity the wickedness and the sorrow and the trouble that comes from that amongst his people. He's saying when God, what God is saying to Balak in this statement is, when I look at my people, I'm not seeing their wickedness. I'm not seeing their iniquity. I'm not seeing the troubles and the difficulties that they're having because they were in the midst, again, of a period. I'm gonna kick this dead horse until I leave today. This is right in the middle of a period where they've got a lot of iniquity, where there's a lot, I mean, people are dying by the thousands 
They've got a lot of trouble. They're in the middle of a desert. Like, it ain't easy. And God's saying, when I look at my people, I don't see their wickedness. I don't see their trouble and their misfortune because that's not what I have for them. That's not what I have said they are. It's an incredible statement. That's why I went through the whole Miriam and Aaron, the rebellion of Korah, obviously the spies in the land, all of it. Just complain about not enough meat. I'm magically making bread appear on the ground for you to feed you in the desert, and you're complaining about not having enough meat. And he says, the Lord their God is with them. So in the middle of this time, this period in Israel's history, when they are very rebellious, and they are very troubled, and they have a lot of sorrow, God says, that's not what my people are, because that's not what I've said they are. And it says their Lord is with them and the shout of a king is among them. What he's saying is, I'm not with my people because they don't have sin. I'm not with my people because they're good at being my people. I'm with them because I said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I have said I would bring you out of bondage and I did it. I have said I would take you through the wilderness and I'm doing it. I have said that I will establish you in my kingdom, in my presence, under my blessing and rule and I will do it. It says the Lord is with them. He is with them because of what is said in verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He is unchanging. Immutable is the technical term, but if I were to get up here at the beginning of this and say, today I'm going to be preaching on the doctrine of immutability, half of you would just immediately go to sleep. So if I can, if I can have that last slide again, our main point. So coming back to it, very short text. That's not the whole oracle. There's a lot else that happens, but this is essentially it. God is faithful to the people that he calls because of his character and nothing else. We see that in this text. When you understand where Israel is in their history, where they are in the Exodus and what they've been doing, the things that God says to them or says about them and says about how his relationship to them is incredible. He has not looked upon the iniquity of Israel. That's all all they've done for 14 chapters is not do what he said. So why would he say that right then? What is the point? So I'm not, I don't have it in my slides. I'm not going to go there. But just trust me on this and check me later, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul references Numbers 11 through 25. He references like five things in there. And he says that these things happened and were written down for our instruction. This actual thing talks about the water from the rock being Christ. He talks about all of this. He talks about the serpents and all of it. The cloud, following the cloud in the wilderness. He says these things happen for our instruction. What Paul means is exactly what I said earlier. Everything that God does and says to Israel in the Old Testament is pointing to everything that he would do for the entire earth in Christ on the cross and the resurrection. Moses is a type of Christ. Egypt is a type of our bondage. The promised land is a type of the eternal kingdom that God will deliver us into if we are in him. Which means that the wilderness is a type of this life. 
when you read about Israel in the wilderness, what you need to understand is that is a type of where we are right now in redemption. Christ has come, the kingdom is established, death is defeated, and he is taking us from bondage to his land of promise. That's where we're going. He is not a man that he should lie. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? That's what he's told you he will do in his word. We tend to separate, and I get that Numbers and particularly the Pentateuch, the first five books, aren't the most interesting reads. Um, If you understand why God was doing things the way that he was doing them, they become incredibly interesting. And so that's the thing that we see in this text. God is faithful to the people he calls because of his character and nothing else. So we see his faithfulness. How can we apply his faithfulness to us from what we see in this text? I've got two ways. They won't be on here. The first way is that God is faithful to his people in spite of their sin. So God stayed faithful through Israel's many rebellions because he said that they would be his people and he would be their God. And he's not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that changes his mind. If I tell you today I will do something and you're like, man, Matthew's a great guy. And then tomorrow I don't do it. You're like, man, Matthew stinks. Your mind changes, right? He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't think about us like we think about ourselves because he's not like us. So my encouragement to you today is from this story, from God's faithfulness to Israel, from what he says is he has not beheld misfortune in Israel nor has he seen trouble in Jacob. He does not regard your iniquity because of Jesus. So I started talking about us thinking about the gospel as though it's a contract. God's not bound contractually to you, right? He wants to do it. He thinks, he looks at you. We say things like when he he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. I struggle with that so much because I don't... I don't, if I were him, if he, again, I think God is, my tendency is to think God is like me. And if God was like me, when he looks at me, he would be very negative, right? Like, I think God looks at me and sees the righteousness of Jesus. Like, how does that work? It's because he's not like you. That's my encouragement to you is that God is not like you. Praise God. Praise God. He's not like me. He stays faithful to his people, even through their rebellions. And he says it in the midst of the most difficult, most rebellious period of the Exodus, God says to this foreign king, I don't see sin and trouble from in my people when I look at them. That's not where I'm taking them. That's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm doing here, Balak. So he stays faithful to his people in this text in spite of their sin. And now we know this is just a microcosm of what we have in Christ. He's faithful to you through your rebellions. That doesn't mean that your sin doesn't matter. Shall we sin more that grace may abound? By no means. So what I would say to you is this. If my statement to you, and I've demonstrated it from Numbers 23, is that God stays faithful to his people in spite of their sin and their rebellions. If in your heart, your response to that is, sweet, I want more rebellions, let me caution you to consider your salvation, to pray that the Lord reveal and convict you. But if in your heart you hear me say that God stays faithful to his people in spite of their sin and their rebellions, and in your heart you say, praise God, that makes me want to honor him. That makes me want to be more faithful. That makes me want to rebel less. And praise God, because he has saved you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And he is faithful to his people. He is not a man that he should lie. 
The second way is that God, and this is a little different, God is faithful to his people in the midst of a wicked world. So in this story, God supernaturally intervenes to speak to a pagan king who is an enemy of God's people and wants to destroy them and keep them from the land of promise through a pagan prophet who's trying to make money. He intervenes to speak to them, to send the message to them that his people will not be prevailed upon because he has said, I'm taking them there and I'm going to do it. And he's not a man that he should lie. Has he said and will he not do it? Similarly, in our time, God is sovereign over the enemies of the church and the gospel in this world to the degree that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against her because God has said that in Christ I will bring her to be with me where I am and I will establish her eternally in my land, in my kingdom, under my blessing, in my rule. I will do what I'm doing. Jesus is building his church. He is alive. He will prevail. Now, much like Israel in the, in the wilderness, that doesn't mean we don't have trouble. It doesn't mean we don't have difficulties. But God looking at us is like, you don't know where I'm taking you. This is where I said I'm taking you. So I'm not gonna get political because it's not my place to do that here. But I will say that it seems like in our culture that opposition to the truth of God is growing. Take with that what you will. Talk to Kirk about it. Right? What I see is that. This is encouraging because God is not man. He does not change his mind. We see God intervene and speak. It doesn't matter whether metaphorical kings or literal kings in this world that want to destroy the church of Jesus, they will not. They can kill us. They can do whatever they want. But our land of promise is eternal and it is secured in Christ. That's where we're going. This life is wilderness. This life is wilderness. Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? That's what I leave you with. God is faithful. Oh yeah. God is faithful to those he calls because of his character and nothing else. Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So with your sin, as dark as this world can get, doesn't matter. God is sovereign. He's in control. That's what he says here. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you, I praise you that you're not a man, that you should lie, that you are not a son of man, that you should change your mind. I thank you that you love us, that you are faithful to us even though we are unfaithful to you. I thank you that you know that we are known and loved by you, that you don't let go no matter what we do. I pray that you will write the truth of your word on our hearts today. I pray that you will that you would encourage us that you would give us, open our eyes to have a deeper understanding of your nature and who you are and how good you are. I thank you that you're good. I thank you that you have called us, that you have secured us. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.